Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we're in 3 John this morning. By the way, if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, we do have some in the back. You can feel free to grab one or we can hand one to you if anyone needs one. All right, good to go. Okay, so this is the third epistle of John the Apostle, and this one is written to a man named Gaius. And uh, that's a common name, or it was a common name during that time. And there's a few different men named Gaius or Gaius uh, in the New Testament, but we don't know for sure if it was the same person or people. Um, so there's no way, really way to know that. But this short epistle, and it's obviously very short, it's only 13 verses, it basically presents a contrast between two men, Gaius and another man by the name of Diotrephes. Uh, there's another man that's mentioned in this epistle, and his name is Demetrius, and we'll get to talking about him a little bit later. But back in John's day, um, and this would have been probably, you know, he's probably in his 90s roughly when he's writing these, these epistles, but back in, in John's day, um, there were traveling itinerant ministers of the gospel, people that would go from church to church uh, and uh, ministering to the unbelievers and ministering to the churches, and they were to be received uh, by the churches and helped on their way. Um, that was kind of a common thing in that day. But there were also false teachers and false prophets who took advantage um, of the hospitality and the generosity in these churches. And so they took advantage of it to spread false teaching or to gain a following after them. And in some cases, they basically came to freeload off of the churches to take advantage of the generosity. And so there was a book that was discovered in the 1800s called the Didache, Uh, And it's known as the teaching of the twelve. And most scholars think that it was dates back to that early century, the first century Christians. Um, And it has guidelines in it. It's not it's not inspired scripture, but it has guidelines in it for how churches are to handle true ministers and false teachers. The reason why is because there was this, I mean, it was an issue that they had to deal with in that day. And last week, I mentioned it, and I read a few uh, portions of it to you. I'm just going to read three, uh, I don't know if you call them verses or whatever, but three uh, statements in there that, uh, just to give you an idea, if you weren't here last week, uh, it says, Let every apostle who cometh unto you be received as the Lord. He will remain one day, and if it be necessary, a second. But if he remains three days, he's a false prophet. So there you go. You stay more than three days, you're, you're like, you know, fish. You don't eat it. You know, it's, it's good the first day, but after a couple of days, it starts stinking. Um, relatives can be like, no, we're not going to go there. <laughs> uh, here's another one. And let the apostle, when departing, take nothing but bread until he arrive at his resting place. But if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. So they had some real pr- practical things. Why? Because it was an issue in that day. Well, it would appear that Demetrius, the guy that was mentioned towards the end of this epistle, was one of those true ministers of the gospel. He was one of those who should have been received by the churches that he went to. Again, we'll talk more about that. But let's get into the chapter. So beginning at verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. 
For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. There in verse 2, he says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. There are people who have taken verse verse 2 out of context, and they've taken it to be a promise from God for health and prosperity. And they'll, they'll quote that verse. Or to state a cause and effect, basically that spiritual prosperity will produce health and financial prosperity. So if you're doing well spiritually, everything else is going to be uh, well in your life. Well, whenever I study the scriptures and whenever you're reading scriptures and study, you should take it in context. So what's the context? The context here is that this is a personal greeting from John to Gaius. It's similar to what you would write. Now, I don't think we do it too often in emails. Maybe you do. I don't. But in, if you write a snail mail, right? You know, young kids know what snail mail is? You don't know it. Okay. It's, it was a letter. It was a piece of paper. You would write on it. You'd fold it up. You'd stick it in a thing called an envelope. You'd lick it. Sometimes, if you weren't careful, you'd cut your tongue. And then you'd put a stamp on there. And uh, back in my day, I think we were like five-cent stamps. They've gone way up. But anyways, and then you'd put it in the mail. And, and uh, then it would take a few days, and the person would get the letter. They'd open it up, and, and it'd be your, your greeting to them, kind of like an email, but really, really slow and getting there. And so typically when you wrote a letter to somebody, a lot of times you would say, hey, I hope this letter reaches you in good health. Or I hope that it finds you, you know, I hope things are going well. It was something, that's kind of a greeting that we would write letters in our letters. Well, this is a personal greeting from John DeGaeus similar to that. Now, to be fair, we do know that in some cases, sickness and even death has been caused by sin. Uh, For example, the believers in Corinth... They were abusing the agape feast, and as a result, some were getting sick. Some were even dying because of their sin. In the Old Testament, one example, a guy by the name of Gehazi, he was Elisha's servant. He got really greedy, and uh, he ended up getting leprosy directly because of his greed. So there was sin involved there. However, again, you can't just say all that's everything, you know, if you're sick, it's because you're in sin or something. Because think about Job. God allowed Satan to afflict Job with festering wounds. He had financial catastrophe. He had death of his children. I mean, everything was basically stripped away from him, and it was not because of Job's sin. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was because of his faithfulness that God allowed him to, up to a certain point uh, to be afflicted in the way that he was afflicted. That's just the opposite of what a prosperity teacher would have you to believe, but that's what scripture is. Um, In John chapter 9, this is John's gospel, uh, verses 2 and 3, the disciples are walking and they see this man who was born blind. And they asked a question that was kind kind of the thought process of the people in that day. They said, hey, rabbi, they didn't say hey, but they said, rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know, why, why is he, he's been born blind, so obviously sin caused it. Whose sin was it? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And then Jesus went ahead and healed him. So listen, if our physical health, if our physical health and prosperity were in fact always directionally proportional to our spiritual health, 
You get what I'm saying? If our, let me read it again. If our physical health and prosperity were in fact always directly proportional to our spiritual health, I'm afraid that there would be a lot more sick and broke Christians in the U.S. and probably worldwide. Why? Because there's a lot of nominal believers who are in poor spiritual health, truth be told. Well, what's the treatment for poor spiritual? You're in the, the land of Mayo Clinic, right? The medical community. Um, the great, this is the best city to have a heart attack in or you know, get sick. You're, there's doctors everywhere. But anyways, what's the treatment for poor spiritual health? I think really it's similar to physical health. How, how do you maintain physical health? Well, proper diet, um, exercise, and proper rest, right? Those are kind of basic, but that's, you do those things, generally you'll be in, in good physical health. Well, you know what? I think that's the same, kind of the same formula, if you want to call it that, for spiritual health, proper diet, proper exercise, and rest. How do you figure? Well, diet. What are you feeding your soul? You know, what, what type of entertainment are you taking in? What type of philosophy are you listening to or, or counsel are you subscribing to? Is it godly counsel or is it worldly counsel? Um, what type of books do you read? What type of websites do you feed? If you're feeding yourself junk food spiritually, you're not going to be very healthy spiritually. The Bible says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Peter says in his epistle, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So what are you feeding your soul with? The next thing, exercise. You know, physically being too sedentary, it's really harmful for your health. It can kill you, literally. Well, spiritually, are you a doer of the word and not a hearer only who deceives himself? Are you, are you exercising what you believe or what, you, what the scriptures tells you? You know, physical stretching. That's one thing. You know, Matrice and I, we do walks or do all these things. And she'd always do all these stretching. And I'm like, man, I hate stretching. I'm just going to go do it. And usually I'd pay for it later with sore muscles or whatever. But physical stretching is important, right? Before you do physical activity um, and even after. Well, spiritual stretching is equally important. You know, walking by faith, not by sight. That, that's stretching yourself, trusting God at his word and taking steps of obedience. Again, that's stretching, allowing yourself to be in a place where your faith is stretched by having to rely on the Holy Spirit, not yourself. You know, taking, getting yourself into a, maybe a place where you're not quite uncomfortable or you're not quite comfortable, but you're trusting on God. That's stretching yourself. As believers, man, we should be stretching. We should be stretching ourselves. How about proper rest? Let me read Psalm 43, 5. It says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Psalm 62, verse 5. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Are you resting in God this morning? Philippians 4 verse 6 be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God 
which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Peter writes in his epistle, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Are you spiritually resting in God and entrusting in him and his promises? You want to be spiritually healthy? Stop feeding your soul junk food. Get in the word of God. Exercise your faith. Apply the word of, of uh, uh, the, apply the word of the gospel in your life. Take steps of faith, and then rest in the Lord's faithfulness. Uh, rest in the Lord and in His faithfulness. That's how you. That's how you have spiritual health. Well, as John uh, writes to Gaius, he says, "I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers." Well, what's what here? I ask this. I mean, how did John know that Gaius? Uh, was in spiritual health. Was it because Gaius wrote him and said, hey, I'm really spiritually healthy, man. Look at all these cool things I'm doing. I'm, you know, was he pumping himself up before John? No. John could confidently say this about Gaius, not because of what Gaius told him, but what others had told John about Gaius. See, Gaius wasn't promoting himself. Others were talking about he had a reputation, a good reputation. Look at verse 3. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in truth. See, everyone knew the truth was in Gaius. Why? Because he walked in the truth. His life was consistent. His walk, his life was consistent with the truth that he believed and he professed. There was no separation between his public and private life. Um, my dad passed away, oh, 2010, I think it was. And uh, I was asked to, um, there was, my mom had her, you know, her pastor from the church that they attended perform the ceremony, but they asked me to come up and, and do part of the ceremony. And, and the only thing I could think of with sharing about my dad was, man, he was a simple man, really a simple guy. He was just a hardworking guy. Um, I'd come, he was home every night for his family. He, he, you know, he was just, just a, that's all I could do. He's just a simple man. But you know what? He was completely transparent and completely consistent. The man that you saw, like, like at Sunday at church, was the same man that you'd see who'd come home from work and just around his family. There was no, there was no public and private life. He was consistent. That's the way Gaius was. Gaius lived his life consistently. John says, verse 4, I have no greater truth or excuse me, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now I think last week, if you were here last week, I think I quoted that verse and said it was in Second John. Maybe, maybe somebody caught that. My wife's nodding. Yeah, she caught it. Um, you know, it's almost exactly the same wording in Second John. There's a verse that says, you know, talks about the same thing. And I thought, wow, I just, I just blew it. But you know what? It was easy to get confused, but it speaks of John's consistency in his life, his own consistency. You know, he didn't tell one audience, because he wrote this letter to the, the elect lady and her children, he didn't tell her one thing and something totally opposite to Gaius. His letters, there's similarities between them. Why? Because he was consistent in his life. Let me ask you this. Is your conversation consistent no matter who your audience is? Good question to think think about. Verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. 
If you were here the last few weeks, and we've just, you know, we just finished 1 John and 2 John, in those first two epistles that John writes, he addresses false teachers and false prophets. For example, in 1 John 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into this world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is, was coming and is now already in the world. And I tell you, right now, the spirit of Antichrist is rampant here in our culture. It's denying Jesus is the Christ, denying that Jesus was a historical figure, although they'll say, well, Jesus was a historical figure, but we don't know if he was God, or he must not have been God, he was a good teacher. That's the spirit of Antichrist, denying who Jesus truly is. In Second John chapter 1, he says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. For he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So in both of those epistles, John's talking about false teachers, false apostles. What do you do with them? How do you you handle them? How do you identify them? But you see, not all traveling ministers were false teachers and prophets. And so they were to receive them, then they were to test them, and like in that didacti, you know, if they were there stay more than three days, hey, they're a false prophet. Um, but they were to test them, and if they were false, they were not to receive them. But if they were true apostles, if they true were, were true ministers of the gospel, then they were to receive them as they ministered to whoever they were coming to and as they were ministering to the unbelievers around them. And so John here, in verse 5, man, he's commending Gaius. He says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. Now, when I read that in, in, you know, just reading it straight out in our language, it sounds like John is saying, you do well for the brethren, the Christians, and for strangers, and the implication would be unbelievers. But that's not the case here. In the Alexandrian version and in the Latin Vulgate, it says, whatever thou doest to the brethren and this to strangers... The Arabic version of the Bible says, to strange brethren. He was probably thinking about me. I'm a strange brethren. Um, Syrian, the Syrian version is to the brethren and especially them that are strangers. So what am, I, what am I saying? These were brothers in the Lord, but they were strangers to Gaius. In other words, they were like visitors to the church. And, and Gaius practiced hospitality and was generous to these ministers of the gospel. Now, every once in a while, we get traveling ministries that come through. Uh, they, they come and they visit our church or whatever. Um, missionaries, they come back from furlough and they, they visit churches and stuff. Um, you know, and so that does happen, but it's not generally as prevalent, evidently, as it was in John's day. But you know, the same thing is true even in our particular church. We have visitors that come in, and they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. Man, we should love them. We should be generous and, and, and open and be hospitable to them. We also have our solace ministry, right? For people that come here um, by word of mouth or whatever, they're here for Mayo Clinic and they find out, hey, there's a Calvary Chapel here in town and they come and they contact us. We should be generous. We should be hospitable to these these brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, sometimes you think, well, it's not a big deal. I can tell you to the people that you minister to, it's a big deal. And it's a big deal to God. Listen to what Mark says, or Jesus says in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, 41. 
He says, for whoever gives you a cup of, of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And God pays attention to what you do for him. Hebrews 6.10, the writer says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And this is what Gaius was like. He, was a, he faithfully carried out a faithful work. He was consistent with God's command to love one another. He lived it out in his life through his hospitality and liberal generosity. And it was to the body of Christ, especially those who he had not met before, to strangers and visitors. Now, if you go into Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, being given to hospitality, it's a requirement. It's one of the requirements that you look for in an elder or a deacon. Right? They must be given to hospitality. But that doesn't mean that only pastors and deacons are to be given to hospitality. And I say, you know, you better be given, you know, Pastor Don, you better be given to hospitality, but, you know, at least somebody in the church is. No, actually, all of us, all believers, should practice hospitality. All of us should be generous in our giving, liberally giving. Um, however, if you're looking to appoint someone as an elder or deacon, they better have that quality or else they have no business being in that position. But you know, Gaius didn't need to promote himself, like I mentioned earlier. Those he ministered to bore witness of his love to the church. And he was a man of good reputation. There in verse 6, John says, If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. So these true ministers of the word, these itinerant teachers and prophets, they ministered to the unbelievers for Jesus' sake. It wasn't for their sake. They weren't seeking their own glory or trying to get their, you know, look at me. It, w- it was for Jesus' sake. It was, to, it was to bless and to glorify Jesus. And they did it without being a burden to them. Uh, for you, those of you that are maybe visitors here you're, or you're new to this church, I, I just got to tell you, this church, this body of believers, um, uh, to me, they're the best body of believers here in Rochester. I'll, I'll be honest, in, in we have grown up as a church here to not be a burden to unbelievers. Every ministry, every outreach that we've done, it's never been to, to you know, bring glory to ourselves. It's never been to, to uh, seek uh, you know, any kind of financial benefit. Man, we just want to bless people. We used to do a festival called Living Rock. And it started a few years ago. Um, uh, Chad and Jen Reese had a property, uh, 13 acres, I think it was. It's a beautiful, beautiful oak oak trees and just gorgeous place and uh we started doing every uh labor day i think it was is that the first one memorial day every i always get those two mixed up every memorial day for many years we would do a living rock music festival and we would bring in bands and we would we would cook food and we'd had a stage set up and it was a camping weekend and we didn't charge a cent to anybody it was free and uh, it was a lot of work. And, you know, we didn't have a building at that time. We were just renting, so our costs were really low. We literally spent thousands of dollars every year on that. And, uh, and we never charged a red cent. We just wanted to bless people and minister to people. Um, our flood run ministry that we do now, it's the same thing. Every year now, we, we do it twice a year in the, in the fall and in the spring. We go to where the flood run is along the Mississippi River. It's a motorcycle benefit ride 
30-some thousand motorcyclists do this. And we set up a, 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 an outreach place there, and we invite the motorcyclists, the bikers, to come in to receive free food. We have a, a food for them, snacks, uh, and we offer bike blessings. And uh, this last one we did was cool. People just drive and say, hey, would you bless my bike? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Of course, you always think, well, blessing a bike, who cares about it? You know, we're praying for the people. That's what's happening. They, they may not realize it, but we're praying for them and for their salvation. Um, but we're also blessing their bike at the same time. But if you're a biker here, that's a little secret here. But <laughs> Well, a couple years ago, or oh, actually I think it was last year, we joined another, another fellowship and we did it together. So the two of our fellowships. And our church, you know, we, we just we just want to bless and not charge a red cent and you know uh, even at living rock when we were doing that and at this flood run every once in a while people go man i can't believe you guys are giving this stuff away free i'd like to give some money and you know if somebody most it depends on i guess we use discernment but you know if somebody wants to give money that's fine um we're not we're certainly not asking for it but when we were joining with this other fellowship um they ended up setting up a cup because people kept wanting to do that and they were they was like well we should let them give money so they set up a little thing that says donations and i don't know about you have you ever gone to something where they have the donation thing it's like it's free they're not charging but there's that donation cup you go uh, you know i feel awkward not putting something in it, it, it's kind of creates this thing well you know we, we're giving it but we kind of want you to pay for it you know and that's not the intent of that other fellowship at all. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Um, but to me, if you are an unbeliever and you're expected to pay or, you know, there's this, and, you know, this kind of this expectation, it's no longer ministry. You're being a burden to someone. And that's not what we want to do. It's, you know, if we were to do that, it's like communicating, hey, we're here to tell you that salvation is a free gift of God through faith in Christ Jesus, but in order to hear it, or you need to give us some money. <laughs> you know, we don't want to do that. And and so these ministers, these true ministers of the gospel, they weren't being a burden on the unbelievers, but so but they needed to be supported somehow. So the churches were ministering to them and providing for them. And Gaius was an example of that, just t- just blessing those ministers of the gospel. Verse 8, he says, We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. That word to receive, it means to welcome with the provision of hospitality. The verb literally means, in the originally, it means to take underneath in order to raise. In other words, to support. Um, so people talk about raising support. That's kind of what that's referring to. John says when we support these true ministers of the word and send them forward, he says we become fellow workers for the truth. Yeah, maybe you're not going out on the mission field yourself, but you're supporting it. You're part of it, and you will be rewarded for that. You know, back in uh, 1 Samuel 30, David and his men, they were out fighting the Philistines. And they came back to Ziklag where their, where their wives and their children and all their livestock and belongings were. Well, they came back and they discovered while they were out fighting the Philistines, the Amalekites, these other enemies of Israel, had raided Ziklag and they took all their children, uh, their wives, their livestock. All, they just plundered it, basically. And so David and 600 men went after the Amalekites to rescue their wives and their children and recover their uh, possessions. But they had just come back from fighting the Philistines. 
And it says in 1 Samuel 30 that they got to this one brook, the brook Bezor, and there was 200 of the guys that were just too exhausted to go further. And so David said, you guys just stay here at the brook and we'll go. The rest of us that have the stamina will cross, we'll go get those guys. And so 200 stayed behind while 400 continued on. And David and those 400, they eventually caught up to the Amalekites. They defeated them in battle and they recovered everything and they brought everything back. And on their way back to Ziklag, they stopped, they joined up with the other 200 men who had been too weary to continue. And in that account in 1 Samuel 30, it says some of the wicked and worthless men who were with David, they, they're like, hey, they can have their wives and their children, but they ain't getting any of this stuff, man. We're the ones that risked our lives. We're the ones that laid our lives on the line. We're the ones that went out there, and, and they shouldn't get the same reward. And it says, David said to them, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this manner? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. And so the, the idea is those who go out and in the mission field, and those who support them, we're all working together for the same truth. We're working together, and the rewards, we're going to share equally in those rewards. And so Gaius excuse me, here is really commended by John for his generosity, for his hospitality, for walking in truth. I mean, he was living practically what he believed and professed. He wasn't a guy to promote himself. Uh, people were talking about Gaius. Gaius wasn't talking about himself. Uh, but now Gaius here is contrasted, or con- con- yeah, contrasted, contrasted, uh, with a man by the name of Diotrephes. Look at verse 9. I wrote to the church... But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth himself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. What do we know about Diotrephes? He loves to have the preeminence among them, among the church. That word preeminence, it literally means fond of being first. And this guy was ambitious for distinction, He wanted everybody to know who he was. Whereas Gaius' reputation went before him, others spoke well of him. Diotrephes, on the other hand, made sure you knew how spiritual he was and how important he was. And evidently, he was in some level of leadership in the church because he had the power to exercise of, of banishing people from the church if they didn't agree with him or whatever. You know, he was able to kick people out. So he was in some level of leadership within the church. But when you look at what, how he's described here, you can basically see he was in the ministry to feed his ego. It wasn't to minister to others. It was to pump himself up. 
And he was someone who Peter warned against in 1 Peter 5. It says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And don't be an overlord. Don't lord it over people. But that's the way Diotrephes was. Diotrephes was so full of himself that he was unwilling to submit to any other authority. He even rejected John the Apostle and his apostolic authority. And Diotrephes, you know, he saw these traveling ministers that came by and he would not extend uh, you know, support to them. He would not uh, extend hospitality or, or, or give anything to them and maybe he used the clause, you know, you're a false teacher or whatever. But he went beyond that to forbidding others who wanted to extend hospitality to these ministers. And if they did, he'd kick them out of the church because they weren't following him. You know, when I read about Diotrephes, to be honest with you, he sounds more like a cult leader than a servant in the church, doesn't he? I mean, that's what it sounds like. You know, unfortunately, and I say this really with a heavy heart, there are some churches, I wouldn't call them a cult, because a cult is something that they deny Jesus is the Christ. There's churches that that don't do that, but their leadership is cult-like in behavior. I'll be honest with you, they are out there. Their churches, they have heavy-handed leadership, and it resembles cult-like behavior. They're telling people what to do. You know, we know, and you guys don't know, you're under us, and so you just need to listen to what we tell you. Um, They want to take the place of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. That's what a cult does. A cult controls every aspect of a person's life. Diotrephes was not letting those people use their own discernment. He was controlling them. And when anyone is perceived as a threat to Diotrephes' authority, he does what any cult leader does. He speaks evil of those who challenge him. They're wicked, you know, and, and, and exactly, that's what a cult does. It's funny, I was uh, going through this studying, and, and I use Robertson's word picture sometimes to just kind of find out a little bit about a word. And Robertson was a pastor, uh, theologian. He lived in the early part of the 19, uh, 20th century. He died in 1934. But I came across this comment I thought was just, it was amazing. He says, some 40 years ago, I wrote an article on diatrophies for a denominational paper. The editor told me that 25 deacons stopped the paper to show their resentment against being personally attacked in the paper. So, you know, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs and one, one barks, you probably hit them, right? So obviously, there were some guys that felt like, oh, he's talking about me. Obviously, there are people like that. And unfortunately, they're like that today. Now, you know what's interesting? When you think of the Apostle John, you think he's the apostle of love, right? He's the love apostle. Um, Everything he talks about, man, is love in these, in these epistles. But you know, Jesus had a nickname for him early in his ministry. When he was a disciple of Jesus, a young man, he called him the son of thunder along with his brother. Why? Because as a young disciple of Jesus, man, he wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village. Man, let's just wipe them out, you know? Jesus said, oh, man, <laughs> I'm going to call you son of thunder, you know? Um, but, you know, I, John's now an old man. He's learned to express that agape love that Jesus expresses or or extends. So he's learned to agape love others. 
But you know what? It's funny. You get the sense that that fire is still in him just a little bit, just a teeny weeny bit. Because he says there, therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. He's talking about diatrophies, prating against us with malicious words. When I read that, my mind goes, it's like John saying, man, I'm going to clean his clock and I'm going to take names later. I mean, that's that's the way I look at that. But you kind of get that sense there. Well, people who have strong domineering personalities like Diotrephes, they usually have a following of blindly loyal people that are they're just they're just blind to their leadership, and they take on the attitude of their leader. And here, John warns, beloved, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. And then there in verse 12, it says, Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. But Demetrius was probably one of those itinerant ministers, the true ministers of the gospel, who was true and sincere, one that was worthy of being supported in the ministry. And he's probably one of the men that Diotrephes rejected and turned away from his church. And look at that. Demetrius, like Gaius, he had a good testimony from others. In fact, it says from all. No one could speak ill of him. Of course, probably Diotrephes. Demetrius had a good testimony from the truth itself. Again, here's another man who was a transparent and consistent believer. His life matched his beliefs, his convictions, and his profession, what he professed to believe. Finally, verse 13. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Again, this is almost the same ending to third, uh, in Third John here as it was to Second John. I think it just speaks to John's consistency. He's being the same person to whoever he's talking to. Wouldn't that be a good quality for you yourself that, you know, you don't have to change? Like, oh, now with this group of people, I've got to act differently. I've got to, you know, I talk differently. But now I'm back with my, with, you know, I'm in the comfort of my own home or with my old friends. Now I can just let it out, you know, because I'm not at church or whatever. John wasn't like that. Demetrius wasn't like that. And so finally here, Again, like I said, this is almost the same as Second John, where John wishes to meet them, meet, speak face to face, rather than writing letters. God has so much to share with you. John knew that speaking face to face is so much more fulfilling and beneficial than just writing a letter or sending an email or texting someone. Again, there's nothing wrong with those things, but don't let that substitute face to face interaction with each other. It's so important in relationships. You know, we want to, especially in the church, you know, the, the Bible tells us that as we see the end approaching, and I tell you, you look around and I see the end approaching. We see the stage being set for uh, the, the return of Jesus for his church. And uh, those things are, are, are getting so close. And, and, and the Bible says, man, if we realize that, how much more should we be encouraging one another? How much more should we be building up one another, fellowshipping with one another, you know, and blessing one another? And so... Um, that's how John ends his epistle here. Why don't you stand up and let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, I want to thank you this morning for the teaching of your word. 
Lord, I pray that uh, each and every person here would prosper in their health, would prosper or prosper uh, in whatever way that you choose to bless them, Lord, even as their soul prospers. And Lord, I'm praying that because I, I do pray that each person here, that they are spiritually healthy. Lord, if they are recognizing maybe that there are some areas that they're, they're weak in or they've maybe neglected, Lord, I pray that they might be encouraged this morning to get back into your word, Lord, to stop feeding themselves junk food, Lord, to exercise their faith, to put it into practice, Lord, to stretch themselves, and then, Lord, finally to trust and to rest in you and in your promises. Lord, I pray for the spiritual health of this body of believers, and I thank you for each and every person here, Lord. And Father, I also um, I just pray, Lord God, that our lives would be consistent. Lord, that we would be like Gaius, like Demetrius, Lord, who are, you, what you see is what you get. And, and what you see and what you get is good. It's not, it's not evil, it's good. Lord, help us to imitate what is good and not what is evil. So I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people. Uh, may you fill them with your Holy Spirit. May, may you give them divine appointments this week as they interact with uh, the lost and the dying in this world, Lord God, around them, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, or just acquaintances. Lord, give us opportunities to share your love with those around us, Lord. And so I thank you for this, this morning, and I pray your blessing upon your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.